You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Greetings, listeners. It is I, TV Spitzer and Farmer Dave, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. Hey everyone, it's me, D.B. Spitzer, and this guy over here to my virtual right. That's, that's, that's Farmer Dave. Farmer Dave, how's it going this week? I am well, all week. All right, good to hear, good to hear. Uh, how are the goats and the rooster doing? They are doing fine, and Ralph is doing well, and the the chickens are all laying eggs, and all is well in Pan's corner of the universe. All right, all right, good to hear, good to hear. So, um, speaking of things going well, uh, Oleander seems to be going well. We had our 4th of July, uh, no major problems, no fires, parade went well, uh, 4-H was there, even the 5-H was there. Yes. Yeah. Oblivion's had 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 their big big floats and uh oleander drum and bugle corps uh senior drum and bugle corps even everyone was out there doing their thing thing in their do and happy fourth of july everyone in oleander uh we don't have the radio station anymore but we do have this podcast so if there's any radio free oleander listeners listening this song is for you <laughs> Hey everyone! Welcome back to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I'm your and host. And I just want to. Oh, oh yeah. And just you, you know, we want to. You know, we we thank everybody. Who, you know, or what? You know, everybody. Hope they had a Fourth of July. Yeah. But those of you that observe the Fifth of July. Yes. We hope you had a great Fifth of July too. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. Fifth of July, everyone out there. Fifth of July. You know, we're talking about Fifth of July. All right, Dave. We're going to be talking about uh, secret languages this uh, this Ooh. episode, and uh, you know, Oleander has its fair share of secret languages, whether it be the secret language that's written along the curbs in the uh, Eldritch Square, or if you were talking about the secret language that the uh, young uh, young heartthrobs that work at the uh, wrecking yard and auto parts store uh, use a series of bird calls to communicate each other when. Uh, when uh, up to nefarious things, I'm 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 told, and and not so nefarious. Things. Not so nefarious things. I'm 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 heard they they make owl noises when they're like uh, letting each other know if uh, there's fresh donuts at the uh, corner store, or, or if there's a sale on taxidermy. Yeah, yeah. They they communicate with birdsong and dance. It's uh it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Anyway, much like lovebirds. Yeah, yeah. Teenage rebel. Auto wrecking and auto parts. So, uh, and modern dance. And modern dance. Hey, yeah. So, Oleander, uh, Oblivion wants you to know that they've got karaoke going on Wednesday nights. So, swing on by Oblivion's 9 30. Uh, Hans, Hans is there and he'll help you out. And, uh, yeah, no. So, and that they will, they promise that they will no longer have all the songs in Aklo. 
They'll have them in English this time. It's not just English, so don't worry about that. If you want to sing, uh, I don't know, the, 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 the theme song to Robin Hood, Prince and Thieves in Thai, you can do that. You can do that. It's pretty or, cool. Or, or, or an opera in its original Klingon. Yes. Speaking of languages, uh, we're going to be talking about Akla with Ken Height. Yeah, before that, Dave, Dave, uh, let's talk about some language. What, you, what, 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 what did you hear, Ralph? Yeah. Ralph was, Ralph was commenting about language. Yeah. Would you like me to translate into the ancient language of roosters? Go for it. So there's this concept. I mean, if the, the beginning, the power of words, things exist as a word first. And so in the Bible... How did God create the universe? He spoke it into existence. Sure, yeah. And yeah. I'm pretty sure. I mean, obviously, Lovecraft was an atheist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think he knew enough of the Bible to think that I think that this might have inspired him to, you know, the creative powers of words. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and so there's always been through, you know, human history that there is this power with words yeah. that you cannot create a thing either physically or magically unless it's created. It's given a name first. And I think that Lovecraft may have been borrowing on that. In other literature, there's always like this kind of like secret language of the angels, secret language of the gods. I knew how to... What's that? In fact, I think Enochian. <gasps> yeah, just... John just... D's Enochian. I think that Lovecraft did mention that he borrowed part of this from uh, from the, the teaching of Enochian and John Dee. Oh, I, I'm not just nece necessarily talking about Enochian, but people who aren't necessarily even aware that Enochian is a thing, that are maybe just aware of Lovecraft being a thing, or the concept of Enochian, but don't know the name of it. Like, like people being like, oh yes, no, I know the... Uh, I was able to speak the 26... Uh, syllable name of Yahweh, so therefore, you know, uh, I was able to do this. And people are like, whoa, you know, just like out of like, just like kind of weird fiction or like being able to like say the true name of uh, Azathoth, but you need two humans to do it in, in tandem to, you know, just, just, you know, just kind of like this concept of weird language or non-human language or language that gets into you or language becoming a virus, language becoming a weapon, language not being just this way that we communicate, language doing something a little bit more. So, so, so I'll give you some examples of yes. that. So one is the, um, the Gollum myth. Yeah, you know, it is the it is the uh, either his forehead or his tongue. It is the true name of God mm -hmm, it, that mm -hmm. powers him. It's sort of the battery. Yeah, but even you know, you know where abracadabra comes from. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's an old Hebrew sort of prayer to drive off the plague. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, and, and I'll I'll give you another example is if we look in advertising. Yeah, or in you know, psychological warfare, you know, we absolutely, in propaganda, we absolutely weaponize words. Oh, sure, sure. You know, yeah. whether it's, you know, two people who know each other well enough that then they're in an argument, know which words to say, they'll get, push each other's buttons, mm -hmm. to, you know, how we villainize the enemy of, 
and propaganda. And, you know, and there's this thought that, you know, we make this words are make them less than human. Yeah. And, and symbolically, you know, that's sort of what this language does is it makes the the like the Marquisi kin or or you know the the even the uh, aborigines of Robert E. Howard, mm-hmm. you know, they they become less than human. Yeah. I'm sure that uh, I mean obviously Mackin knew of D. I, I don't think he had. I'm sure oh, that he yeah, knew yeah, who yeah, John yeah. D was definitely, definitely. Yeah, Ken talks about that a little bit, but yeah, yeah no, no. Um, I, I I think like Lovecraft heard Mackin or read Mackin stuff and was like, this is crazy. This sounds like ooh, all this stuff mixed together makes for something really weird. If you if you, if you think of it all being kind of mixed together, and then you know, Jim probably is like, you know. <sighs> Lovecraft's talking about John D and other stuff, so he's thinking about John D with this stuff and Enochian. I'm sure he's thinking Enochian when he's talking about the Necronomicon and when he's talking about Wilbur Whaley. Ken Hyde covers this stuff. I'm 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 not a genius who's just coming up with this. And um yeah, so I, I think that's definitely kind of where this comes from. But what I want to talk about is what else in literature? Who else does this? I mean, I was thinking, like, you said you hadn't read Snow Crash, but in Snow Crash, there's pretty much, like, um, what I would describe as, like, a QR code that appears in cyberspace because uh, everyone's living in, like, cyberspace, the Matrixy, like, from the Shadow, uh, Shadowrun universe, the Matrix, not the Matrix Matrix. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, everyone's hanging out kind of in this, like, cool place, and there's this thing that if it pops up uh, digitally, uh, it, 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 can, it can hurt you in the meat world, and it's, it's, like, based off of old Babylonian, and I'm probably chopping this up because it's been a while since I've read uh, Snow Crash. And it's 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 kind of like a biovirus, and it just kind of like affects a human on a just like it it something that can af- you see in the digital world that can affect you physically, and it goes back to like the story of Babel and all that kind of fun stuff. But uh, other things I was thinking of was, uh, and uh, I think it's only in the movie because I can't remember if there's weirding modules in. Uh, the book Dune, but I remember there being weirding modules in the uh, in, in in the David Lynch in film. The David Lynch version. Yeah, yeah, and like them being able to say words and it like turning the words into force that could like catch things on fire or break bones or like cause organs to rupture from within or like break stone and like usul being a killing word, but you know. Uh- I love that I'm film. I'm pretty sure that I think that they, <laughs> they added that for the uh, 1984 version. Okay. All right. And it's, it's one of my favorite things. And people are like, why do you like that movie so much? And I'm like, the character design, the set design, the bits and pieces that aren't from the original Dune that make it kind of like this Lynchian, I don't know, sci-fi epic that Sir Patrick Stewart. Yeah, yeah, and that 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 amazing musical instrument he carries around the beginning part that makes it so that he can produce music that sounds like Brian Eno and Toto at the same time. Yeah, uh, other 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 languages. Oh, yeah. Uh, so so uh, I I did double check, and David Lynch did add the the weirding modules. Okay, cool, cool, cool. All right, now we don't have to 
figure that one out. Uh, let's see what else we have. Uh, well, if we're, if we're going to talk about languages, yeah, and languages of power, you know, um, J.R.R. Tolkien. Ooh, he he wrote, but he, you know, he wrote this whole Elvish, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so I got a kind of a story to tell about this, but how? So, um, you know, when I was at work a while back, or you know, like ten years ago, they put on this little instant message to everyone. There's like a hundred of us in the call center. Sure. Says, we found a lost gold ring. If it's yours, you know, describe it, and we'll give it to you. Uh, and, and so I, the my guy, my friend was you know the buddy at the control center. I said, it's an it's an uh, it's a golden ring and it's written in Elvish. It says you know one ring to rule them all. And, and, and he wrote back and says, no, this is in the tongue of the Dark Lord. <laughs> I got out joked and out nerded. But you know, so there, so there, there's even this pre mortal pre Elven language. Yeah. You know, we think Elvish and you know. Dwarven runes, uh-huh. but you know, Tolkien even had you know this pre pre Elven language. Yeah. Well, hey, you know what? After the interview, let's talk more about pre Elven languages and Aklo and that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, okay, all right. So uh, I'm going to talk to Ken Height. We're going to have some ads, and then me and Dave are going to talk about some D and D on D and D. All right, we'll see y'all after the break. Hey everyone, welcome back to, I almost said Black Clock Audio Tales, welcome back to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I'm here with Mr. Ken Height, Ken A. Height. Can you believe it? It's crazy. We're back with Ken again, and we are going to be talking about Aklo. What is it? Who is it? Who came up with it? Who's using it? And uh, can you use it in your game and your stories? How would you use it in your game and your stories? These are the questions. Ken, how's it going? It's going good. I'm happy to be back. Happy to uh, be part of the, you know, get in on the on the ground floor, I guess, with the A's. That's yeah. good, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, you know, sh- my shout out to whoever you got on to talk about Abhoth. I'm sure they did a great job, but you know, whatever. Oh, it's just me and Dave j- just uh, conversing about it, and we're like, we're gonna save Aklo for Ken Hine. He's he's That's the one who'll know nice. something. <laughs> right. Well. To the extent anyone knows anything, I do what I can. It's been it's been pretty great. Everyone, you know, we're vaccinated. I'm out running around. Uh, Chicago is basically reopened. Nice. Every so often you get um, uh, a grocery store in a neighborhood that listens to a lot of NPR, and they're all worried, and they're wearing their masks, but uh-huh. everyone else is super happy. Nice. And uh, the, the taste of Chicago just got relaunched, so nice. you can go out and get sweated on by a million of my fellow citizens at some point. That'll be good. Cool. Yeah. I, the summer is threatening to turn awful because the summer everywhere is threatening to turn awful. Yeah, yeah. But right now, at this moment, it's breezy and under 90 degrees, and I will take it. That's that's what it's doing in Portland. So, you know, af- after last week. <laughs> yep, after you guys were roasted like chickens. Yeah, I, 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 I lived in Phoenix for two years, and I was like, you know— Phoenix didn't have humidity when it got this yeah. hot. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. I mean, I'm I'm certainly not on team people should live in Phoenix, but uh, I definitely feel like um, Portland would would have it worse oh, uh, yeah. at the same temperature. It's, I mean, when Chicago cracks 100, it's just insupportable because it's so humid and damp from the lake and the 
swamp and everything else. Oh yeah, yeah, that sounds yeah. awful. <laughs> it is. I can trust you. I can tell you. And I used to not have air conditioning, and it was really awful. Uh, yes. My wife and I used to have to um, spend uh, our anniversary. We would go to a hotel, mm-hmm. literally, just so that we could have air conditioning. This is back before we we had it in in our house, which is where what we have now. Hurrah! Yay! All right. Yeah. No, I, I've been watching uh, the Instagram and the Facebook, uh, checking out, uh, you know, watched your uh, like like a lot of people watched your uh, Instagram, social media, watched your. Uh, oh, man, my 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 uh, isolation. <laughs> my brain is not working. <laughs> we all lost 40 IQ points. It just takes a while for him to come back. But I, I, I got to watch you during the quarantine and a lot of other people, not to sound creepy watching you, but just seeing what everyone's up to and how they're how how they were coping with it. And it seemed like you had a pretty good setup with your backyard and everything and Virgil and uh, yeah, Sheila. I mean, and, you know. A cat, a fire pit and a wife is is what most people need, I think. Yeah. Um, I also, it turns out, needed three million friends and neighbors. But uh, <laughs> I mean, they're as people who went through it, mm-hmm. we went through it fine, oh, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. I know people who got super sick. Sure. I know people who lost people. That was, you know, that said, it was terrible. I never want to do it again. I hated every minute of it, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just, uh, it, it's just, um, it's not how I'm meant to be. Uh-oh. If I wanted to live in a, you know, in my backyard, I'd, I'd have stayed in Oklahoma city where the backyards are enormous. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, uh, not my scene. I did enjoy getting the fire pit. I, we've had people over, uh, since nice. it, the fire pit still works even in a, in a, in a vaccine and, uh, uh, full environment. So that's <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, it's it, it'll be lovely, but uh, I'm looking forward to getting back out there, getting back on the road, going to conventions. I'll be at Dragon Con in Atlanta, which Ooh. is, I think, being thrown into the deep end of reconventioning, but I'm yeah. ready for it. Uh, Gen Con moved to September, and I'll be there. Uh, Origins moved to October. Uh, I don't know how great Columbus, Ohio is in October. I hope it's sort of, you know, uh, pleasantly brisk, right? Yeah. Like a... Like uh, like the opening scene of a horror movie, not um, dire and terrible the way that many places are in October. So cross fingers, Columbus, behave. But yeah, I'm looking <laughs> forward to getting back on the road, getting back into the swing. Very cool. Seeing all of my all of my colleagues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe I don't know. Get on an airplane and fly to a different country. That'd be fun. Hey. I hear that. People can do that now. That'd wow. be nice. I hadn't even thought about that. I mean, like literally, yeah. I haven't thought about like, oh, yeah, we can leave the country. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, All right. we, we, we've got an enormous uh, country full of cool stuff to do, so oh, I get sure. why it would take a while to think about it. But, you know, <laughs> I, I, I keep a lot of my spare books in London, and sometimes I like to go get them. Understandable. Understandable. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of books, uh, right. we're going to talk about Aklo. and. Yeah. Okay, so what I know about ACLO, like I always like to start, I'll tell you my limited knowledge, and you can help fill me in. Uh, now, okay, so that was uh, not, oh goodness, who, who came up with ACLO? I know Lovecraft used it, and kind of something about John D based off of, of, of some, some made-up language John D. but I know that Lovecraft didn't start it, but what am I thinking about, Ken? What... <laughs> 
<laughs> I literally details. have no idea. Um, even <laughs> even for the intro to this segment, that was quite an intro. I mean, <laughs> let's just start by sure. saying uh, that Aklo, Qua Aklo, uh -huh. was a throwaway cool word made up by our buddy Arthur Mackin. <sighs> the white people. The white people. And uh, as part of the... Uh, Demonstrating that the the main character, the narrator of the white people, the little girl, is slowly becoming uh, stranger and more remote and more unhuman. Mm -hmm. He has uh, write down. Uh, I must not write down the real names of the days and months which I found out a year ago, nor the way to make the Aklo letters, mm -hmm. or the Kian language, or the great beautiful circles, nor the Mao games, nor the chief songs. And all of that is just meant to sort of imply an alien universe mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that she's touching and that we can't. And that's sort of the reason that he makes up all those cool names. And when he says the Chian language, he does not mean the language of the Greek island of Chios. Sure, sure. He means some sort of other thing that exists, the language of the, of the, of the white people, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so if you do a straight up, Pure, ultimately purist, based on this, not even a paragraph, this line from Mackin, Aklo is an alphabet and maybe also a language, hmm. but she calls them the Aklo letters. And okay. in Lovecraft, uh, in Dunwich Horror, uh, we have, again, because this is his Mackin story, I think we've talked about it, I know I've talked about mm -hmm. it, um, he's got a diary written by a strange adolescent, and in this case it's by our boy Wilbur Whiteley, and he writes, um, uh, today learned the Aklo for the Sabaoth, which did not like it being answerable from the hill and not from the air. Uh, and uh, so that is him talking about he's learning uh, magic and mm -hmm. the Aklo for the Sabaoth. And he later mentions he that came with the Aklo Sabaoth, implying that it is uh, an incantation called the Sabaoth uh, that is done in Aklo or possibly done as a uh, as a ritual using Aklo letters because, of course, ritual magic involves making designs, uh, pentagrams or or, um, or or strange uh, scripts, things like that, and then calling things into being. So, again, you could argue that even in Dunwich Horror mm – -hmm. um, Aklo is still an alphabet or a way of shaping words, not a language. Okay. Right? Yeah. But in Haunter of the Dark, we do get Lovecraft uh, saying that uh, the cryptogram uh, that was found in the uh, Old Starry Wisdom Church, mm -hmm. the, 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 uh, the book, um, uh, the text was in the dark Aklo language used by certain cults of equal evil antiquity. Ooh. Um, and so... Uh, now it's fully a language, and it's uh, although it's treated in the story, interestingly, as still a cryptogram that you can crack it, right? Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. you're cracking a code, not like you're translating a language. And so um, uh, he's he's sort of like moving through from that space where uh, in the purest Mackin space, it's just a a way of arranging language, in this case the Kian language, mm -hmm. down to now it's its own language. And um, uh, I, I believe he mentions Aklo again in um, Dyer of Alonzo Typer. Okay. Uh, and so, well, you know, once more we have 
the the sort of the slow evolution of ACLO into being a language and an alphabet instead of just an alphabet as it is in Mackin. Um, and that's, I mean, that's what we know canonically um, about ACLO. And I believe that in one of his letters, he talks about uh, the ACLO unveilings. And so uh, people have sort of uh, borrowed the ACLO unveilings for other things. Uh, Ramsey Campbell, of course, uh, uses them in uh, The Inhabitant of the Lake. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, uh, in, in this way, it's uh, in, initiation into Glaki, into the cult. And you, 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 you speak 48 of them. And then the 49th is uh, when Glock, I mean, spoilers, it's when Glocky eats you or turns you into a corpse. That's how the ACLO gets used by Campbell, again, in that sort of halfway space between a language and a ritual. Uh, ACLO drops out, you know, a couple of other places in the mythos, mm-hmm. you know, as far as uh, the John D connection, which I guess we should get to before we plunge off the cliffs of Alan Moore. Sure. Uh, uh, John D also uh, spoke with airy spirits. Um, he thought they were angels. I think agree to disagree. Seems fair. Sure. Um, and they taught him the language that they said was of the angels, which was Anokian or Anakian. Uh-huh. And uh, it is interesting, of course, that if you say uh, Enochian and you cut it in half, you're left with Kian. So it's like uh, maybe that's where Mackin gets that. He, of course, Mackin... Uh, was you know was woke to the golden dawn. He knew all those magic guys. He would have known about the Enochian language. Uh, he would have been proud that John D was Welsh. So um, uh, uh, the Kian language sounds like it might have been a break off of John D's Enochian. And uh, John D's language of the angels has been studied by uh, cryptographers and by linguists and cryptographers all pretty much agree it's a code mm-hmm. and linguists agree that it's a constructed language. Um, and so I guess never the twain will, will meet, but, um, but the, uh, and of course the other, you know, deeper, uh, level of that is that Enochian, uh, certainly if D did not intend it has been used since by the golden dawn, uh, as a way of carrying Kabbalistic meaning in which, it's not so much the language that matters, it's the numbers that you can add the letters of the language up to that carry the real meaning. So that Enochian, there's an Enochian letter, there's the Enochian letter's name, and then the Enochian letter's secret number value, and that those are all levels uh, that Enochian operates on. And uh, so you can um, you can certainly you know, go as far down the Enochian rabbit hole as you want to, or the Enochian rabbit hole, uh-huh. I guess it should be. Yeah. It's Enoch, not Enoch, but anyway. Um, as you do so, you get farther and farther necessarily away from Lovecraft, except obviously that Lovecraft has John D. translate the Necronomicon, yeah. and that's the version of the Necronomicon that um, uh, that Wilbur Whateley has. Sure. So you can argue that if Whateley is learning Aklo from his... Necronomicon, he must be learning it from John D. at some point, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, even if Aklo was, you know, was, you know, the the how to speak Aklo was chapter nine of the Necronomicon, and Abdul Al Hazred is just transcribing it off the Duolingo or the <laughs> not the Rosetta Stone, Rosetta Stone, yeah. but the evil secret Rosetta Stone somewhere um, in Iram or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still being passed through John D to uh, Wilbur Whiteley. So it's a, 
I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, fun stuff knotted up there in the back, and obviously Lovecraft means at least half of these jokes as much as Mackin does. He's yeah. doing a, a you know call outs and Easter eggs uh, in this even more than he or not in more, but as much as he does in Whisper in Darkness, right? Which is all call outs and Easter eggs by yeah, that point. Yeah, yeah. Alan Moore, uh, starting with a, a story called The Courtyard, mm -hmm. which was then illustrated, uh, became a comic book. Um, he came up with the notion that Aklo is not just a language. Mm -hmm. uh, he borrows the notion of language as a virus from William S. Burroughs. Okay. And uh, I don't know how big a Burroughs head you are, um, but uh, in the, the Soft Machine and the Nova Express and some of the earlier Burroughs stuff, mm -hmm. he talks about uh, language basically reformatting our, not just our brain our, our understanding of, of you know you know is this a cow or is this a coo is yeah. this a horse or is this a cavallo um but understanding what what can you say what can you think mm -hmm. what how does your brain operate yeah uh, it, it's sort of a a, a drug-addled version of the saper wharf hypothesis which is that uh language structures your your neurology basically mm -hmm. okay. um and uh, Saper and Worf, I think, have basically been uh, left aside and, and linguists have moved past them. I'm not a linguist, so I don't know. But I think strong Saper Worf was a wild notion that was cool in the 50s and no one thinks it's true anymore now. It's kind of like general semantics or a lot of other stuff uh, that wound up in science fiction uh, for some reason. And so uh, Burroughs came up with this idea that uh, – a linguistic construct would literally put a box around you and make you unable to see or perceive certain things, which again is a, is a Lovecraftian concept. Mm -hmm. And Burroughs of course was a big Lovecraftian guy. Yeah. And so if you have the notion that Wilbur Whiteley is out there learning to address invisible entities, maybe learning a language that rewrites your brain so that you can see them is part of that. Hmm. So Lovecraft takes this sort of, or not Lovecraft, Alan Moore takes this sort of ball of of thought and makes it uh, specifically that Aklo does rewrite your brain, but instead of rewriting your brain to be able to see invisible things, it rewrites your brain to be in tune with uh, the Cthulhu mythos, right? With the, 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 the hideous truths of the universe. <sighs> and so when Aklo is being passed around in this subculture, mm -hmm. uh, the, the sort of the joke is that people think it's a drug um, and uh, it's being investigated as though it's a drug by the cops, but it turns out, well, it is a drug because it's horribly addictive and it destroys your life and everything else, mm -hmm. and it gives you crazy visions and out-of-body experiences, huh. but it's a language, and they're passing around bits of the language until it sort of reformats your brain into being a, a Lovecraftian cultist, um, and in, in some cases, indeed, rotate your perception out of our universe, and uh, Moore takes that from uh, the courtyard, and he he loves the idea so much that he sort of does it again in his riff on Shadow Over Innsmouth, Neonomicon, huh. uh, to you know make the Aklo sort of the underpinning of that story. Yeah, uh, that the the deep ones uh, re reformat our physiologies in the same way that Aklo is reformatting our brain, gotcha. and that the deep ones then become sort of the parallel of Aklo in uh, Neonomicon. And I mean, it's Alan Moore, so it's brilliant and it's amazing. Uh, a lot of Lovecraftians don't like it because uh, Alan Moore very much sort of front and centers 
the racism of uh, the inherent text and also uh, all the raping that's also in the inherent text. Yeah. And uh, a lot of uh, people, and I'm not going to say they're wrong, are like, literally the reason I like Shadow of Rinsmith is that Lovecraft keeps that stuff way in the back. I just want to <laughs> hear about fish frogs. I don't want to <laughs> think about this yeah. disgusting... Uh, Lovecraft has a mad on against Cape Verdean people. And so he writes a extended rape fantasy, not cool. Don't like it. Don't want to think that. Um, and, and, and it's a, and it's a great piece of literature. I should mm -hmm. say it can be interpreted on lots and lots of levels, but to argue that that's not one of the levels is I think disingenuous and more just is trying to remove our excuse for not looking at that level, yeah. I think is the, is the way to say what he's doing in Neonomicon. And then, uh, to, uh, I don't want to say a lesser extent, but to a, a more spread out extent in Providence, uh, okay. which I think also mentions Aklo because it's set in that same sort of Neonomicon universe, but it's not as uh, crucially about Aklo as it is about uh, the investigation and discovery of, of the secret history of Lovecraft, which is its own you know great experience. I mean, the, the three of them, I think, are each time more like, well, I've said what I'm going to say about Lovecraft. Boom. Mm -hmm. That's the courtyard. That's a short story. I'm done. And someone says we should turn that into a comic. He thinks about how to do it. He does it. And then it's like, well, now I see another bigger thing that I can do with. And he does Neonomicon. And he's like, now I'm done. Surely I'm finished. And then people are like, well, you've only addressed this tiny part of Lovecraft. What about the rest of Lovecraft? What about the whole, you know, universal over? And he's like, okay, now I'm going to come after it and do Providence. And, I mean, you can see this happen, you know, I guess I don't want to say over and over, but throughout his career where he takes some little fractal part of a thing and then just sort of expands it out as he thinks about it more and, and uh, adds more things to it or draws more things into it. Yeah. And you can see that in, you know, literally everything that he's done to, to, to one extent or another, you know, from, you know, from hell, I think, being the, the canonical mm -hmm. uh, normie example that it's just. The the, the 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 six sordid murders in Whitechapel that he blows up into this gigantic fantasia on um, uh, science and society and uh, and religion. So it's uh, it, it's part and parcel of what makes more in my mind the the William Shakespeare of, of comics, the, the greatest that there ever has been. Mm -hmm. uh, but it also I can understand why Lovecraftians. First of all, uh it's always a little worrisome if, if a equally titanic talent starts taking on your stuff because mm -hmm. you're like, oh, you know, now, you know, Lovecraft and Alan Moore, which one is bigger? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think a lot of people just don't like the sort of uh, rotate and focus methodology that, that Moore uses just mm -hmm. or they don't like giant deep one penises, which is, I guess, fair. But, you know, <laughs> so Ken, question. How would you use Aklo if you were going to write a story, like suggestions, not what you would do specifically? I mean, I'm right. sure you want to save that for your best stuff. <laughs> My best, best stuff. Well, I mean, I, uh, I'll i tell you right now, I'm running uh, a Fall of Delta Green campaign, Ooh. and I am using Aklo as sort of a shorthand uh, for uh, basically, if, if you imagine the human brain or the human sanity to be the... Uh, you know, the, the piece of black construction paper that you hold up in front of the eclipse. Sure. Each word of ACLO or each letter of ACLO is a pinprick that goes through that construction paper and lets the light through. Okay. And so it gives you an ability to uh, sort of hack the source code of the universe on one level, but on another level, obviously it's 
tearing away at your ability to believe that mankind matters and that um, human physics is uh, relevant. And so uh, that uh, that's sort of how I'm doing it is is as you know, you can you know, you, you found a, a canister of plutonium. Great. Uh, that sort of approach. Um, and uh, and it's it's good and it's fun and it works in a game because games can remain fluid. Uh, they you you don't have to arbitrarily set down. Well, Aklo can do nine points of damage. You don't have to do that if you yeah. don't want to. Um, if you're doing it, I feel like the general Alan. I mean, and this again, I, I alluded to with the gravity problem of of someone equally as as great as Lovecraft coming into the field. It's very hard to get away from Alan Moore's idea about something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. So once you've thought of Aklo as the strong saber wharf taken to magical extremes, yeah, or the Burrosian language virus taken to extremes, I think it would be very hard to avoid using it in that way. Yeah. And again, I don't know if you should avoid using it that way. It's it's terrific, right? It's a great idea. And so if you wanted to do, you know, a version of Pontypool, Snow Crash and Pontypool, both. Uh, I think could be improved is the wrong word, but uh, decorated yes. uh, beautifully with Aklo. I think that uh, making those the um, uh, making those the the framework that you use. So either your your Aklo version of the of the Nam Shub uh, lets you uh, rename everything mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, in the way that Adamic, the language spoken by Adam in the Garden of Eden, was supposed to be able to do. And yeah. uh, people in the Renaissance spent a great amount of effort trying to figure out what Adamic was and working their way back. I mean, they didn't really have a, a dendrological understanding of languages the way that we do, but they knew that Hebrew had to be the oldest language because, right, I mean, the, the, the you know, Moses and them spoke Hebrew. So if you start with Hebrew, oh, but ancient Egyptians, a language, maybe it's a combo of those. Two. Ooh, but what about the Babylonians? What did they speak? Did they speak Syriac? And again, they didn't have, you know, they didn't know what cuneiform mm -hmm. was. They didn't know that he couldn't read hieroglyphs. Uh, so they're sort of trying to build this notion of the Adamic language. And the Adamic language, of course, when Adam names a cat cat, it doesn't matter what anyone else calls it. It's cat. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that was the notion of the of these words that have power over the universe. And I feel like if you wanted to treat Aklo like like I was saying, like plutonium or like mm -hmm. some other weapon of mass destruction, sure. like a munition, I think that would be fun. Um, I think you, you, you can use it as a uh, thing that, you know, that's what the NSA uh, and the GRU's computers and the Chinese MSS, all of their computers are doing. They're not trying to find prime numbers. Uh, they're trying to solve for ACLO, right? And, <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe the Chinese have, have one or two words of ACLO or one or two letters of ACLO and the Americans have three or four and the Israelis have one. And if all of that alphabet is ever put together, there will be a linguistic uh, catastrophe um, you know, like the Tower of Babel, right? Sure, Comes sure, down, yeah. confuses everyone's language. We all go crazy. The world collapses into fire and chaos, flames in a holocaust of ec ecstasy and freedom, perhaps. I don't know. I'm not the expert. Um, uh, people learn to revel and shout like the great old ones. Yeah. You could say. Uh, but that, you know, I think could be a, a good vibe for like your sort of uh, uh, spy thriller, um, uh, you know, a very high concept tenet style spy thriller. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with Aklo in it. I think that'd be a great uh, game or story or even novel um, if you uh, if you if you wanted to really sort of lean into that thriller modality of it. Yeah. Wow. That 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 
geez, that that sounds amazing. I, I I'd, I'd play that game. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I'd watch the movie. That's for sure. yeah. I was like, I'd read that book. Yeah. Well, Ken, thank you so much. Is there anything that you're working on right now that you think uh, you want to talk about? You want to tell people about? How's how's uh how's 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 how are your projects doing? What's what's up these days? Uh, well, the uh, pandemic slowed me way down. Yeah. Uh, it turns out, I think we talked about it, that I need uh, people and bars and museums and movie theaters and all the other uh, aspects of urban society uh, to get my taps flowing. So yeah. uh, Hellenistica got delayed. Uh, it's still delayed. Um, the uh, I did right after you know we all got released. Mm -hmm. I, I put together the second Inquisition book for Vampire. That'll be coming out from Renegade uh, at some point uh, cool. pretty soon. They've got the vampire license, so uh, everyone should rush out and, and buy books from Renegade. Uh, and, of course, the podcast kept on keeping on. Mm -hmm. So Ken and Robin talk about stuff at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com with my buddy Robin. Uh, we just were the, as we said, we were the Bob Hope and the Vera Lynn of this podcast, <laughs> entertaining uh, uh, everyone uh, in our Traveling USO show. And if you got that joke, you were at risk. <laughs> <laughs> you need to go to your doctor and have a checkup. Right. Say, I'm terrifyingly <laughs> old. Please inject me. Please vaccinate me. Um, yeah, so the, I mean, that was basically my project uh, for a while. And now I'm I'm getting into some, uh, some more stuff. Like I said, I did the Second Inquisition book that was mostly wrangling other uh, good writers. I wrote a little bit of it. Um, and I've got a couple of projects that are, you know, getting off the dime. Uh, I don't know when this will drop, but uh, band or album remix is, I think, still kickstarting right now. All right. So uh, hurry to that. My my uh, social game that I did with Jeff Tidball, um, the, the remix version uh, is up on, on Kickstarter again. And uh, I guess I could also uh, plug uh, Grognards and Gorgons, unless it's Gorgons and Grognards, uh, it's a Napoleonic gumshoe game by Rick Dakin uh, that I'm doing the history chapter for. So cool. I don't know when that'll be out because uh, that's depending on me. And I, as previously alluded, uh, have got to knock the knock knock some rust out of my pipes, basically. Good, good. All right. Well, Ken, thank you again for coming on and talking to us about ACLO and just crazy word language. Yeah, crazy <laughs> word language. That's what we love. <laughs> my language is, is is all crazy today but yeah you, thank you again you an aqualift and it's deranging you already oh, uh, yeah i don't I, I, it i'm starting to think you don't even have to have it visible you could just like write it on a piece of paper and stick it in a drawer and ruin someone's yep. year <laughs> exactly a very very mr james casting the runes that way <laughs> yeah yep. mr james uh as uh oh goodness yeah never mind i'm gonna not go off on that. <laughs> I'll just edit that out. <laughs> maybe, start... maybe, maybe another episode. We oh yeah, go yeah, off yeah. on Mr. James. Definitely, definitely. I'd love to have you back you on. Get and... to C for Count Magnus or M for Magnus. <laughs> that sounds good. Ken, thank you so much. We'll see you next time you're on the show. And everyone, thank you so much. Check Ken out at Ken and Robin talk about stuff and everywhere else you're going to find Ken. I'll post some in the show notes. And thank you again, Ken. Oh no! Thanks for having me on, DB. It's always great. Do you like the TV series Tales from the Crypt? Are you interested in full episode and movie reviews from Tales from the Crypt? This podcast is for you. 
the Good Evening Kitties podcast, where I, Melissa, your ghostess with the mostess, recap every episode with special guests and bonus horror movie reviews. The Good Evening Kitties podcast can be found on most podcast platforms. Check it out today. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher. Or visit MonsterKidRadio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Bryce, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. this week due to the fact that Ken Height talked about everything, so we don't have anything to talk about on Dave's Corner of the Podcast. Uh, up next is D&D on D&D. Those two awesome guys, D&D and D&D. By the way, this is not a really bad Dave impersonation. I'm just a random person who walked into the recording studio and read a bunch of stuff on a piece of paper. Thank you and have yourself a good day. <laughs> that theme song in quite some time dave it's a classic it's a classic it's a classic it's it's no dave's corner of the podcast uh july edition but hey not too many things are these days i tell you uh aclo how would you use it in a D campaign dave so i i used it not in a, a D, but it yeah. was in a, a gurps uh uh a it was a um a task force 23 which is basically Weird World War Two, and one of the guys was a linguist, and he kept coming up across them. And some other weird things happened, like he accidentally got into like a an alien gene splicer, and so it turned his skin gray and his eyes big. So he was getting sort of warped all the way, but he had read it so much, and he had made, failed, you know, whatever the willpower rolls or whatever it is in, in GURPS, you know, that he had become like addicted to it. Uh-huh. And not only that, 
is that he didn't realize it that any time he read it, yeah, uh, he had he read it out loud, huh. which of course brought all sorts of things, you know. <laughs> and, and the player loved this, you know, like uh-huh. ah, yeah, oh look, you know, I can't. Oh, is there any acro? Let me see if there any, you know. So all sorts of sort of dark demons would come around whenever you would read them. Cool, cool. I I have used it in D and D, but uh, people just learned like anything that people learn that is ACLO is just kind of like a basic ACLO, just kind of like, I don't know, ACLO with the training wheels on it. And it's just kind of like, oh, no, you've just learned the letter forms and the phonetic equivalent of, like, the true uh, name of the words. You have to, like, put in a lot of time to, like, actually really learn ACLO. This is like, no, you don't know ACLO. You you you're in pre-aclo you 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 know pigeon aclo you you can like use aclo without killing everyone around you you can make shapes but it's not like you're making the three-dimensional shapes you're just making the two-dimensional representations of a three-dimensional shape you dummy and then you know the 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 powerful necromancer's like wait a minute what (laughs) i'm 14th level (laughs) And I the, don't the, know the, this. This dungeon, <laughs> this dungeon was brought to you by the letter Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. No. And 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 then it's like you know you treat Aclo like it's a biohazard almost because it's uh, k- kind of like in the uh, Call of Cthulhu role playing game, the Chaosium uh, role playing game, Call of Cthulhu, how. Uh, mythos knowledge is not something you want to have. It's 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 kind of, you know it's it's gonna mess you up. I mean, it it might not be terrible to have a little bit of just to know to get the heck out of there, but you don't want to have like a really high mythos skill. <laughs> no, and some of the things even add that to where you have the the mythic languages, uh, and for like the old. Um, Fourth edition, uh, yeah. Keeper's Companion, Volume One. Goes, in fact, it even I believe has some like examples that you could Xerox and show to uh, your players. And it's something too that is more than this, say like the Dark Tongue or you know Undercommon. It, it it's got more of a, a background and a connection and, and a danger to it. Yeah, yeah. And I've actually had in like a Shadowrun game. Uh, people try and like a cult try and like actually project Aklo at a laser light show um, mm. using three dimensional, you know, t- so that they could actually like project like a three dimensional uh, form of like the a letter. hologram. Yeah, like like actually like move it around. I don't know if you've ever been to a laser light show and seen kind of the dumb things where they like make a a tree move around 360 degrees or like make words move around in like, I don't know. Laser Floyd. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but if you're able to like make like a, 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 even just like a simple letter form in ACLO, like something really bad being able to like move it around and have everyone see it and all of its dimension be like, uh, and no one know why everyone's like freaking out and tearing the place apart, if not each other apart. But anyway, yeah. I mean, you can use Aklo in all kinds of ways. Yeah, and especially, you know, if you've got this, this person that knows just enough to be dangerous. Yeah. Because one of the things with Aklo, you don't get that curve just right. 
it can mean something completely different. But then again, and that so, can have. Oh, sorry. Yeah, and, and it could maybe summon something completely different. But that 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 could be the start of your adventure. Uh, someone not knowing enough Aklo, but just like accidentally learning enough, or by chance, like uh, someone who knows enough leaves Aklo laying around, but doesn't uh, expect like on that... dead bodies. Oh, I don't know. I was thinking like even like a piece of paper that just like explains stuff and someone who's smart enough, like, you know, maybe some sort of prodigy runs, you know, some some, some sort of like a young wizard who just happens to be a prodigy, like someone with like a, I don't know, intelligence of 20 runs across it, says something stupid, does it wrong, does it right, doesn't matter. <laughs> Blasts a big hole through time space or uh, summons something or turns into something, or um, pulls something into another plane, or pushes something, you know, pushes a whole region into another plane. Something happens, and that's... Or it negates all divine magic, so you can't have any healing until you destroy it. Exactly. You could do all kinds of stuff where just, like, someone accidentally messes up the known natural function of things, the order of the universe, with Aklo. Just like a simple, just like, just, just tiny little mistake. Just, you know, boom. Then, then you're all messed up. Anyway, that's, 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 that's going to be my favorite way to uh, possibly use Aklo. I think that's a, a lot of good ideas there. Yeah, yeah. Another one that just popped into my head, which could be part of this, uh, uh, this 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 greater kind of like use Aklo wrong end up starting a whole campaign is like uh, something popped in my head. Uh, have you ever seen the film Pontypool? I don't think I have. It's a Canadian zombie film where a simple phrase accidentally turns into a um, kind of like a mental zombie virus, mm. and and it just just kind of like maybe like just even like. Uh, something written in Aklo, but like miswritten and read out loud, just kind of like turns into some sort of like, I don't know, crazies virus, like uh, uh, George A. Romero's The Crazies. You know, not necessarily zombies, but, you know, just like living things that just kind of like lose all sense of purpose and just start attacking anyone who's not them, you know, just kind of that kind of thing. Uh, there, there, there was a... Um, uh, 1980s Twilight Zone uh-huh. where the team goes in and they're investigating what seems to be an insanity, a virus that drives people crazy. Yeah. And they can't find the virus. Ooh. And they finally tracks it down to this guy who's traveled all over um, the world. Uh-huh. And it turns out what it is is it's him saying what the meaning of life is. Oh. The secret of life, and then yeah, and so they got to stop them before it like gets broadcast on a radio station. Huh. Oh man, that's uh, <laughs> that's 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 a good one. That's a good one. So so you know if you're doing D and D, you know maybe it's not a radio station. Maybe it's you know a, a bard or a bard college. You got to stop it before it. Drives all the bards crazy. Oh yeah, yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe just a simple, simple proclamation about how, like, uh, I don't know, uh, 
the truths of uh, <laughs> the multiverse. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of ways you could do that in a lot of different uh, campaign settings, a lot of different role-playing games with a lot of different media. Uh, media being the weapon, not actually the person who carries it, but just consuming it. I mean, goes beyond language. Like an example that just pops into my head before we uh, get out of here. Well, I heard uh, I heard some rooster crowing. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe they're crowing in Aklo. Yeah. But the thing that made me think just of like media as 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 like uh, the other is uh, the ring. That's that's like uh, the the VHS in Ringu. But yeah. Or or if you're playing a uh, you know a Shadowrun. Yeah. What if there's Aklo computer language? Ooh. What if it's a programming language? Yeah. Hey. And all of a sudden you, you have all these programs that just do amazing things. But then there's some sort of warp in reality or something that, that it, it curses the area. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, you could definitely do some sort of like throw two sci-fi words together, like um, say that it's some sort of quantum binary language. <laughs> it exists. I believe in, it. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, like the new uh, state of the art bleeding edge decks are written in this quantum binary, dude. You're going to be the leadest decker in all of the street sprawl, chummer. Sorry, I, I think I mixed up some. <laughs> you did good. You did good. Thank you, thank you. And like street languages and stuff like that. Uh, in pre-show, we talked about whether or not we'd like talk about like the, uh, was it the NASDAQ of uh, A Clockwork Orange? But nothing really, uh, nothing really too much about that other than the fact that it's like a bastardization of uh, uh, Russian. But... Yeah. Um, a lot of Russian slang thrown in, but yeah, no, um, yeah, not, not much more that we could talk about with this stuff. Uh, thank you. So, I mean, there's a ton that we could talk about, but nothing that we've really discussed. Oh, oh I thought of an, <laughs> I, oh, I thought one more thing. Oh yeah, sure. You go to a, a town uh -huh. and, and all the thieves are like, are, are turning assassin and jumping off the 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 top of the castle and killing themselves. Ooh, it, it's because someone is sneaking Aklo into thieves' camp. Ooh, <laughs> or a new thieves' guild tried to form up, and they're like, "Hey, anyone know any secret languages?" Well, I found a book of secret languages. We could use it for our new code cipher. Awesome. <laughs> and unfortunately, dimensional shramblers and uh, <laughs> all and kinds likes. of. And, and the likes accidentally summon a buy a key when you're just trying to like leave a note about like, hey, uh, this place is easy to break into, dude. But anyway, all right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. This has been David Heath as Farmer Dave and me, D.B. Spitzer, as podcasting's D.B. Spitzer. And our guest, Ken Height was played by Kenneth A. Height. You can find more about us in the show notes. Find out how to help out the show, how to become a member of our Patreon. Listen to, I don't know, the whole interview, not just the stuff that I cut out and throw into here and all of the pre-post-show stuff that me and Dave talk about. So thank you again so much. And uh, Dave, anything that you want to say before we take off? No, I just hope that everyone does well this week. Me too, me too. All right, everyone. Have yourself a good one and goodbye. Bye. All right.
up next, Natural Disasters and Horrors of the World. Uh, that's, yeah, no, it's uh, part five. So, yeah, that's uh, about another half hour. So thank you for listening. Check out the show notes, as I just said a moment ago, a month ago probably, and enjoy the show. If you get a chance, uh, you know, look look up the uh, host of this part of the show. That's that's still DB Spitzer, but um, I'm 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 also the the, the recipient of uh, One Town Block, so I'm different than the other DB. But that's more of an ARG thing. Okay, peace be with you. Great disasters and horrors in the world's history by Alan H. Godby. Chapter 5. The Louisville Tornado At eve along the calm, resplendent west, I marked a cloud alive with fairy light, so warmly pure, so sweetly, richly bright. It seemed a spirit of ether, floating blessed, in its own happy empire, while possessed with admiration of the marvelous light, slowly its hues, opal and chrysolite, waned on the shadowy gloaming's phantom breast. The cloud became a terror whose dark womb throbbed with keen lightnings by destruction hurled. Red bolt on bolt, while a drear ominous gloom enveloped nature o'er the startled world, a deep alarm burst the thunder boom and the swift storm his coal-black wings unfurled. There is a perspective of news, as well as of art, which requires that such features in a view as are supposed to be nearest to the observer must be given larger detail. It is a natural consequence of the fact that a small object nearby may conceal from view a mountain in the distance. So in the news world, a dog run over on Washington Avenue takes rank with a wreck in the Indian Ocean. A fight in a neighboring saloon gets ten inches, a strike in Germany ten lines. Your neighbor's new barn is a good item for the country paper whose editor cares nothing for the new bank in Boston. The widow Jones gets a puff for whitewashing her fence. The refitting of the White House gets a line. A million of people who have heard of George Washington never heard of Alfred the Great. Now, not a few will think that there is injustice in this. Doubtless, the tendency of the time is to exaggerate perspective to obtain startling effects. Caricature is characteristic of the age. And yet, there was never before a time when so many people took interest in things that lay beyond their own narrow circle, even if that interest be from mere curiosity. Sometimes this self-centered condition of humanity has an amusing aspect, as if one should imagine the earth terminated with his own apparent horizon. Some South Sea Islanders called the first white men who visited them skybreakers. The reason is simple. Dwelling on their little islets, mere specks in the deep, and in all their myths and legends having no account of any other race, they supposed themselves to be the only people in the world. Their sky was a vast wall of blue stones raised by one of their mythical heroes. It shut in the world and could not be far away. Thus none of them had endeavored to reach it. So these strange white creatures were not of this world. Neither were they of the race of the gods. They came from no one knew where, and had somehow broken through the blue wall that bounded the world. And white men are in some islands called skybreakers to this day. 
Something of the same spirit is manifested by the Chinese. The devil of their mythology is white. So our occidental sensibilities received quite a shock when we learned that we were foreign devils. The Japanese more considerately called us foreign beasts, as though uncertain of our status in the animal kingdom. And to this day our magnificent vessels are gravely styled devil ships by the Chinese. Such are what might be appropriately styled ludicrous exaggerations of perspective. And we of the West are similarly so wrapped up in our self-sufficiency that it hardly occurs to us that we may appear as amusing to foreigners as they to us. In this respect, our charity begins at home. It is the way of the world. But there are a thousand occurrences that make us feel that the principle is just, no matter to what extremes we may foolishly carry it. It comes home to each with peculiar emphasis in the hour of distress. The famine in Asia does not weigh upon you so heavily as the death of the woman who starved in the garret across the street. A fire that burns Chicago is easier forgotten than one which destroys the little home that represents the savings of years of your life. The cholera in India has no such terrors for you as the diphtheria or scarlet fever in your own village. The Tsar of Russia is blown to pieces in his carriage, but he has no remembrance at the bedside of your sick friend. Ten thousand dead victims of a distant earthquake are hidden by the coffin in your own home. Since the same law applies to the interests of nations, it is not necessary, in reviewing the work of destructive tempests, to apologize for giving chief place to the recent Louisville tornado, however insignificant it may appear in comparison with scores of others that have desolated the earth in days gone by. The latter shall be noticed in due time. In the foregoing chapter, we have seen that the great cyclones that occasionally visit us originate in the neighborhood of the Antilles. Of course, similar conditions may produce smaller storms of the same class in numerous localities. These small storms, whose paths are but a few yards, or sometimes as much as a mile in diameter, are called, to distinguish them from the great cyclone of 20 or 200 miles in diameter, by the Portuguese title of tornadoes, or turning storms. Often the broken character of the country will cause a large gathering storm to break up into half a dozen or more of the smaller ones, which in their narrow paths are as destructive as the cyclone. It is the unexpected that happens. No one experiences so many surprises, or has more pet beliefs upset, than that oracle of the chimney corner, the oldest inhabitant. It was long believed that tornadoes never passed over an old Indian campground, Whatever the popular opinion of savage intellect, there is marvelous confidence in his instinct. Again, it was thought a tornado never would pass over a large city. The storm in question demolished both these old wives' tales. During March 27, 1890, the Signal Service Department observed a threatening storm center gather in the southwestern portion of Wyoming and start eastward with great rapidity. Notice was promptly given. Railway, telegraph, and electric light officials were warned that on Thursday night a hurricane would blow with a speed of at least 50 miles an hour. Signal service predictions had sometimes failed, and this last one excited no particular concern. The destroyer came and was gone in two minutes, and blocks on blocks of Louisville were a ghastly ruin. The tornado was accompanied by a cloud and tremendous rain. To an observer at the falls, the cloud was seen to come up the gap between the hills which guard the banks of the beautiful Ohio. He described it as balloon-shaped, twisting an attenuated tail to the earth. It emitted a constant fusillade of lightning, 
and seemed to be composed of a lurid snake-like mass of electric currents whose light would sometimes be extinguished for a few moments making an almost intolerable darkness it was accompanied by a fearful roar like that of a thousand trains crossing the big bridge at once it could be seen to strike louisville and then with incredible rapidity it leaped the river churning it into white foam as it went toward the indiana shore the streets of louisville parallel to the river are named those at right angles are numbered from east to west the section visited may be described as a rectangle a mile square bounded on the west by eighteenth street on the east by seventh on the south by broadway and on the north by the ohio river it comprehends the business portion of the city through this district the cyclone swept diagonally from southwest to northeast crossing the river and leaving the city at the foot of seventh street the business houses or residents of perhaps ten thousand people lay in its path two days after the storm when there had been time for a calm survey its track is thus described by a correspondent of the associated press it first descended upon the beautiful little suburb of parkland southwest of the city destroying many private residences the loss of life was inconsiderable at this initial point however rushing onward toward the northwest it lifted for a moment above the trees and housetops and descended again a mile further on at maple and eighteenth streets from this on its pathway is clearly marked at no time did the base of the funnel touch the ground and one hundred feet higher in the air it would have passed by without doing comparatively much damage the ruins as they now are often show the first and even the second and third stories of buildings still intact with the roofs and higher stories swept away except in places where the debris from the upper floors crushed into the lower and brought the walls down to the ground in total collapse from maple to eighteenth streets it went northward one block then west at an angle another block and then curving to the northeast as far as magazine and thirteenth streets a quick change to the north is perceptible here and after traveling in that direction two blocks another turn to the west an acute angle was then made the line turning from fifteenth street northeast to thirteenth street again thence due east to tenth street and north a block to market street at thirteenth and jefferson streets it swept through baxter park doing great damage and a block eastward destroyed st john's episcopal church in the rectory of which the rev s e barnwell and his little sons were crushed and burned to death the rest of the family escaping st john's church is in the street immediately in the rear of the ill-fated falls city hall the eccentric monster went on eastward past the falls city hall without touching it and then as if suddenly recollecting it swept around the block and started westward on the south side of market street had the change of direction been made a trifle sooner or later falls city hall would have escaped and the dead been numbered within thirty or forty at the most as if satisfied with the work accomplished it turned north again and struck main street this thoroughfare is the principal business street in the city it runs parallel with the river from east to west and but a block south of it it is lined with wholesale houses and was the solidest part of the city in point of architecture the tornado reached main street at twelfth and then shaped its course directly east down the middle of the broad street sweeping away the solid stores and warehouses on both sides from twelfth to seventh streets on main it is a wholesaling district and it was practically untenanted at that hour had the storm come in the daytime and taken the same direction hundreds who were at their houses and escaped unhurt would have been killed 
at seventh street and main the buildings change in their character the big louisville hotel is on main between sixth and seventh and east of the hotel are restaurants saloons and other hotels which contained thousands of people at that hour the tornado chased down main street carrying everything before it passing eleventh street tenth ninth eighth and seventh a block further and the louisville hotel with its hundreds of tenants would have been reached the escape of the hotel is the strangest incident of all adjoining it on the west from whence the storm came was a three-story building used as a saloon on the first floor and occupied in the upper stories as sleeping apartments for the hotel servants this three-story building right under the east wall of the hotel was totally demolished and not a timber left a dozen feet higher than the ground its inmates were killed the great hotel shook from roof to cellar with the force of the shock but it was spared the storm veered at the sharpest kind of an angle to the north again crossed main street and struck for the river taking in the union depot on the way strange to say although the depot was totally demolished only one person was killed there at the point where the tornado crossed the river between new albany and jeffersonville it is supposed several small crafts were sunk reaching the opposite bank of the river the storm turned to the east again and took off a bite from jeffersonville it went along front street for a few blocks damaging buildings but causing no loss of life then it took to the river and struck the kentucky shore about four miles east of where it left it and outside the city of louisville at this exact spot is located the louisville pumping works which supplies the whole city with water the pumping works were destroyed and the city is now threatened with a water famine in consequence the next herd of the peculiar course taken by the tornado is from eminence kentucky about forty miles east of louisville which was badly damaged by the storm the intervening country may have suffered somewhat but no other towns were visited and from eminence the destroyer probably took a final leave of the earth's surface and passed on to the atlantic coast at a higher and less dangerous altitude this outline seems to show how easily the course of a storm is modified by the irregularities of surface even when the obstacles are such as it can overcome it is seen that the course of a small storm over broken country little resembles the steady curve of the storm in the open sea ever and anon the obstacles below momentarily break the regular current which is often renewed in a moment by the powerful upward suction in the upper air this is the phenomenon known as jumping which may be repeated till the widening of the center leaves the storm too weak to promptly restore the current at the ground and the danger from the tornado is over some of the apparent eccentricities in the city are doubtless due to the fact that occasional buildings were strong enough to resist and leaving such at slight variations in its course made it present the appearance of doubling on its track so many blocks of buildings great and small in an instant violently hurled to pieces would seem to infer with certainty the death of nearly all the occupants that only about a hundred should have been killed outright was therefore a matter of astonishment no less of gratitude the terror and anguish of the first moments or hours could not however be measured by the actual calamity to human life members of households suddenly separated from each other in the darkness could only fear the worst their startled imagination saw the missing one dead or dying under the huge piles of fallen buildings there were excited cries and calls and wailing of the living a mad rush and frantic tugging at the ruins from beneath which were sometimes heard shrieks for help or groans of the dying 
to add to the universal terror fires broke out in many places threatening imprisoned wretches with a fate more horrible than the crush of falling walls or timbers bricks or iron hurtling through the air before help could reach them the flames took hold on some and hushed their cries forever fortunately the fire alarm connections were left intact and as alarm after alarm was sent there was a dashing of the engines to the rescue and the whole fire department was presently engaged in extinguishing the flames or recovering the living and the dead hospitals and morgues were suddenly improvised in sheds or shops where the wounded were cared for or the dead were deposited to await the recognition or claim of the living fall city hall was the theater of the principal loss of life it was a brick building fronting on market between eleventh and twelfth the ground floor had long been used as a market and contained forty or fifty stalls of gardeners and butchers these stalls were closed and the keepers were absent at that hour of the disaster in front on the second floor were three small rooms one of them utilized as an office the other two as toilet rooms behind these was a large hall and in the rear of this still another hall in which a young lady her father brother and sister being present was teaching a dancing school there might have been sixty-five persons in this room though one eyewitness says twenty-eight in one of the small rooms seven men constituting the executive committee of the roman knights was holding a business meeting in another room a band of musicians fifteen in number were going through a rehearsal some decorators were at work in the large hall preparing it for some coming occasion on the third floor were assembled the jewel lodge number two of the knights and ladies of honor with an attendance of a hundred or more in an adjoining hall the humboldt lodge number one forty six of i o o f with seventeen members was in session the whole number of people in the building must have been nearly or quite two hundred in an instant the fearful wrench of the cyclone had twisted the building into fragments and tumbled it in shapeless ruin upon the inmates ten minutes after the collapse might have been seen a frantic multitude hastily gathering from all quarters among them many women clutching vainly with their fingers at the slate roof and madly tearing at the wreck beneath which the imprisoned and wounded were crying for help presently fire broke out but it was happily extinguished the work of rescue was now organized and speedily set in motion but an hour elapsed before the first victim was extricated this was a lady found sitting upright with bruised head and broken arm she told of her vain effort to escape and of the position in which she had last seen her companions meanwhile some were digging in the center of the debris in answer to a voice which grew fainter and fainter until it was hushed forever the work of rescue was now shifted to the other end of the pile james hassan was foremost among the workers and on reaching the hall room of the knights and ladies he took from the ruins the first body which proved to be that of his wife and who expired in his arms he gently laid his dead wife aside and hurried again to aid in recovering the rest presently ten women were reached clasped in each other's arms all dead but one the dancing room was reached one lady was taken out fatally hurt and one after another her three children unconscious but destined to recover while her husband was urging the rescue of his fourth child still somewhere beneath the ruins an undercurrent of air having been admitted the fire again broke out with startling fierceness and the furious heat compelled a suspension of the work the groans of the imprisoned were now changed to fearful shrieks while the watchers helpless to render aid screamed and ran wildly about with anxiety and horror three or four lines of hose were turned upon the flames and they were subdued but an hour in which probably many a life went out 
had been lost from the work. By twelve o'clock many dead and wounded had been removed from the ruins. The dead were largely in the majority. Many of these exhibited no outward wounds and had been apparently suffocated by gas escaping from broken pipes. But the reader may be spared further details of the recovery at Fall City Hall. Suffice it to say that two days were required to remove the wreck and demonstrate the precise extent of the calamity. On this spot, about 80 persons had lost their lives. The narratives of some of the survivors will serve to show that while the tornado comes without warning, the heaviest wind is not just at first, and a cool head may sometimes profit by the interval to escape. Sailors have a saying that the tail of a gale is the strongest. A young man who was taken from the wreck of the hall says, I was dancing when a flash of lightning, followed by a crash, made me think that the lightning had struck some part of the rear of the building. The next moment, the big doors that enter into the big hall in front flew open. I continued dancing and cried to some of the boys to close the doors. They did so and were bolting them when they were again forced open with such a force as to knock down everybody around them. Then the window sashes were blown in and the building commenced rocking. I saw that the house was about to fall and I hallooed, the walls will go next. I ran into the dressing room and I think most of the girls followed me. I got under a table and held fast to the legs, thinking that I might be saved in that way. Then the walls began crumbling and the lights went out, and the floor descended like an elevator. The crash stunned me for a moment, but finally a flash of lightning showed me a hole in the debris through which I might have crawled had not my leg been pinioned between some timbers. There were people all around me, and they were crying for help, but there was no one to aid us. I tugged and strained, but I could not get loose. Finally, I heard my father's voice and answered him, and directly he crawled down the hole. It took him three quarters of an hour to extricate me, and then we both crawled out. If there had been help at once, we might have saved others, as I knew about where they all were, but they were more or less hurt. That less than half of those in the building should have been killed is a matter of wonder. The manner of individual escapes can only be inferred from one or two more which we subjoin. One of the lady members of the Lodge of the Knights and Ladies of Honor relates, I went to attend the lodge meeting, and when all were present the calamity came. There must have been about 75 people in the room at the time of the tornado. Some of them were able to get out before the building fell in. The first intimation we had of what was coming was the flash of lightning and the beating of hail against the windows. The wind howled, and I heard a fearful roaring noise. The people became frightened and hurriedly gathered their wraps together. All were fearful of impending danger. Just at this moment I saw a round hole blown through the wall, immediately above one of the windows. The gas went out, and I saw another round hole appear in the roof. Through this I saw lightning play with awful grandeur. This natural light was all that relieved the gloom and darkness. I heard one of the trustees of the lodge call out to all the people to go out quickly and in a body. He cried out not to rush, as someone would be killed if they did. Then I knew no more until I became conscious and found that I was partly embedded in bricks and timbers. I felt blood running down my neck and became aware that I had been struck on the head by a brick or timber. I extricated myself and by the flashes of lightning made my way over the terrible mass of debris and dead bodies toward the front. I saw a man making his way down the pile of bricks to the street and I followed. When I reached the sidewalk, I was aided to a neighboring store by a lodge trustee. I don't know how he made his way out. I heard cries for help as I came out, but I had barely strength to move and could not help others. A thrilling experience was that of another member of the same lodge. 
his estimate of the attendance, larger than the foregoing, is yet materially exceeded by others. He says, The first intimations of danger we had were two distinct rockings of the building, about which time a dormer window in the lodge room was blown from its casings, and immediately after the plastering began to drop from the ceiling. A wild rush was made for the anteroom, which carried me with it, and I had just reached the door when the entire floor gave way, and we were precipitated to the basement, blinded and almost suffocated by a cloud of dust, and crushed and jammed by falling timbers. In some way the door frame fell with me and maintained an upright position when it stopped, and I was enabled to extricate myself from the debris and make an exit to the street through an adjoining house, whose doors I kicked in. Meanwhile, the shrieks and groans of those still imprisoned by the wreck formed a chorus that, in connection with the howling of the storm, made me very heartsick. I was, so far as hasty examination went, comparatively uninjured, and at once returned over the ruins with several men to the rear of the place and extinguished a fire that had begun to blaze fiercely. By this time the rain was falling in torrents, and it was difficult for those who had gathered from the neighborhood, or who had been as lucky as I was to escape with life, to tell where to begin the work of rescue. The vivid lightning flashes gave only momentary views of the position of the ruins, and blinded everybody. Among those whom I saw and recognized as having escaped from Jewel Lodge, I can name only the treasurer, who was covered with dust, drenched with rain and well-nigh distracted by the probable fate of her aged father, who had attended the lodge meeting with her and who was still in the ruins. The entire building collapsed in front and rear, and of the east and west side walls nothing was standing above the second story. So far as I could judge when I had succeeded in escaping, there were at least a dozen, all told, who got out unhurt, and the cries for help and groans that issued from the broken and twisted heap was proof that scores were still there, unable to escape. The Union Depot was utterly demolished. An officer of the Louisville Southern Road relates the story. Quite a crowd of people were present waiting for trains. Mr. Woodward of the Monon Railroad was near me, and I had been talking to him. The wind was blowing strong and seemed to increase in power. We heard a dull moaning in the distance, and the glass in the windows of the depot was shattered, although the first puff was merely the advanced guard of the tornado. The people became alarmed. One man started to rush into the ticket office, but the ticket seller pushed him back. Mr. Woodward and I also started for the ticket office. Just at this moment, the tornado, like a clap of thunder, struck the depot. The building gave way and tumbled in upon us. I was just at the door of the ticket office when it went down. I fell, and a man standing near me fell across me. A heavy girder fell on top of him. Mr. Woodard was only a few feet away. I never lost consciousness. I spoke to Mr. Woodard, and he replied. We both thought we could get out alive if the depot did not catch fire. We knew that there had been stoves with fire burning in them in the depot before the tornado struck it, and I expected the flames to break out at every moment. I spoke to the man who was lying across me and told him that he must manage to squeeze from under the girder. I thought that if he was off me, I could manage to get out. After many desperate efforts, he managed to get from under the girder, but in doing so his bowels were torn so terribly that the doctors do not think he can recover. He was a brakeman who had come here to be a witness in some case. I do not remember his name. After the brakeman got off me, I was able to use my strength. Then I got out, and so did Mr. Woodard. I was under the wreck just 35 minutes. I was slightly bruised in the arm and leg, but that amounts to nothing. Though 40 or 50 persons were in the depot at the time, only one, a restaurant boy, was killed. 21 passenger coaches were more or less wrecked. 
on following days the impression of the ruins upon the beholder was peculiarly gloomy instead of the stir of life the brilliancy of electric lights the scream of whistles and the rumbling of trains there was a scattered wreck and a comparative silence a few chickens liberated from their coop crept at dust to roost on a timber and in subdued tones seemed to be discussing with each other the mournful situation End of chapter 5